0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is April, otherwise known as Taftaj, that is T-A-F-T-A-J. She is a male-to-female transsexual and is controversial for her skeptical nature and skepticism towards specifically gender ideology. She's also somewhat interested in dissident right-wing thought, and in this conversation we talk about her path of transition. And her political ideation. I had a lot of fun speaking with April. You can find links to her work in the description. She streams on Twitch, posts on YouTube, and on the Twitterverse. Without further ado, here is April. When did you start getting involved, or at least uh, plugging into uh, the taco sphere or the you know the internet commentary sphere? And where did you start? Where did you start at that point? Yourself.
1: Yeah. So. When I was 13, my mom hired like a philosophy tutor and a logic tutor for me from the local college because I think she just didn't want to debate with me <laughs> and I would constantly like harass her and I was like a big atheist. So I was like, "Mom, I want to debate you on this and I want to debate you on that." And I would just like, you know, talk your ear off and I think she was like, "All right, we're going to hire someone to like talk to you." <laughs> and so I had this philosophy tutor and that really opened my eyes to political philosophy. And he was kind of a libertarian. So he made me read The Anarchy okay. State and Utopia. And naturally that made me a, a massive libertarian when I was 13 and an atheist. And I was uh, I was big into that. And then I, I just voraciously consumed whatever political content I could because I have this idea that if I bring ideas into my mind, um, if I let them contend with Whatever idea is currently gestating there, the better one will win, and then I'll, I'll get closer to the truth. So, huh. I've just always done that, where I'm just constantly trying to find new and often like um, more controversial edgy stuff because, you know, I'm familiar with all of the, the usual arguments from. So, see, so
0: you're you're driven by curiosity, but also by a, a, a sense of aesthetic taste, like your our hunger is yeah. also driving it. Okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I th-
0: I think it might be actually... Uh, it just made me think, there's so many kids that go to therapy when probably 80% should just learn philosophy and how to think critically rather than talk about... <laughs> well, their I also like, went
1: to therapy. So. Oh,
0: okay. So you have <laughs> a smorgasbord, okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think philosophy was a lot more interesting, so I enjoyed okay. that more.
0: Yeah. Did... Uh, I mean, I don't know where you want to go with the conversation, but I mean,
1: there's so many yeah. places to go, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm my my tendency is to get personal, but I'll I'll delay that until you you bring that up. But I'm just thinking, no, or I'm just personal. wondering about um, the relationship between your mind and whatever psychological um, issues. Like, what, do you think it, it comes down from being hyper intelligent feeding into? Uh, other uh, psychological issues and I mean why would you go to a psychologist I mean is it craziness obsession or just overthinking Um, things or
1: I mean well I have gender identity disorder for one and then I also I probably have some form of like very aggressive body dysmorphia which is um, very much connected and also transcending of the gender issues and so I think both of those things have kind of tortured me all my life. I, I don't know if it's an intelligence thing. I think you know anyone can have this. And oftentimes it's made me, I think, look inward, right? Where if I was afraid of going out and talking to people, well, I could just stay home and I could read a book and I could you know, find this way to feel powerful and the way to do that was to become adept at arguing and to feel like you have the best ideas. And you kind of transcend your physical body in a way from doing that, where you are the idea and you're able to exist as this kind of intellectual or this, you know, this profile on the internet that's anonymous and is defined not by its appearance by, but by its ideas. And that was a very attractive prospect to me. I think.
0: So it sounds like. Uh transition and transhumanism are kind of bound together in that you want to be something other than a, you want to rise above, you want to transcend that which you are on a coarse physical level.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I don't want to couch it in like too grand of terms. Cause I don't know, Like, I don't know if it would like extend that far. Into well, like a political are field, you saying but-
0: that you're not solving the mind body problem? like just with your mere existence? Cause that'd be kind of cool. I,
1: right? I don't think so, <laughs> oh, okay. but that would be cool. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I think that to an extent, like a lot of living and a lot of what I've had to do is like learn to exist in that level of discomfort. And this is an experience that I think most, Young people have to some degree where there's all of these things you don't want to do. You don't want to work out. You don't want to eat healthy. You don't want to like practice your instrument or your foreign language or study. All of these things are struggle. They're all like painful. And our little monkey brains want us to just sit on the couch and masturbate and eat salty food. But you have to like go through that pain and you have to like learn to love that process of being within your body and feeling its suffering Mm -hmm. in order to come to a better place, to become healthier, to become skilled, et cetera. And I think that transition is, there are echoes of this experience within that where you have to learn to exist in your body because if you don't, you can't function. And so you have to learn how to deal with that pain. You can't just transcend it. And that is something that is I think a lifelong uh, process learning to do that.
0: Mm. So you said all your life uh, you've had some form of dysmorphia or gender dysmorphia. And so when, when are your first memories of, um, what
1: did it feel like? First memories. It's always tough because like the brain will falsify memories, but there are pictures of me like very young, um, like three or four, and I'm like wearing dresses and, you know, I hear from, my family they'll say things like yeah it was like very obvious from like an early age that like you had a very strong affinity for a certain level of presentation and we're very interested in that like um growing up like being friends with girls like there's this anecdote that my mom would tell me where i would show up preschool every day and they had like a dress-up section in the back she dropped me off, and like, first thing I would do, like, go to the dress up section and just like put on like a costume dress. And she'd like come back and she'd be like, You're not wearing your clothes. And it's, or I was, but underneath the costume. And she'd be like, What's up with that? And it's because I was doing this every day. So I think that there is probably something very deep seated in my brain that just has like a preference for emulating um, the women in my life.
0: Okay so the women in your life not the feminine so it's a mirroring or it's rooted in in your interactions with real life women rather than this ideal that's
1: what i think i think that if i were in a different cultural context where like women didn't wear dresses i don't think i would wear dresses i think i would wear whatever women are wearing in that Mm -hmm. context um that's you know it's hard to say that for sure but i think that's my my best guess especially because you see other people with gender identity disorder you know their cultures and they tend to do that kind of mirroring behavior and you know when you're a kid you don't have a sense of like the divine feminine or you know you don't have a sense of this philosophy you don't have a sense of even biological reality you just see like oh mom does this i want to be more like mom than i want to be like dad and i think that's like that's the child brain's understanding of it
0: yeah so that is like a positive move toward the women or the feminine, but there's also like a negative move away from the discomfort. What about the discomfort of being not a woman in your body? Did that arise suddenly, or was it kind of always there in the background?
1: I didn't get a rose when I got older. Um, when I when you go through puberty you suddenly become very aware of your body. Yeah. And I remember getting like a little bit of hair above my lips. And that was like horrifying to me. Cause I think that was like the first realization of like, Oh my God. Like I always had this thought in my brain. It was totally irrational. You know, when I was 11, 12, I would think, well, there's just no way that I'll grow up to be a man. Like that seemed crazy to me, especially because even then my, Presentation and the way that I interacted with the world was like very androgynous and, you know, intentionally so on my part. Like people would always confuse me for a girl. And I always kind of had this thought like, well, it's impossible for me to grow up and to be a man. And then I got like a little bit of facial hair and suddenly it was like, oh no, this is actually happening. And that like horrified me. And I became very, very interested in figuring out what was going on. And, you know, prior to that moment, I had no conception of you know transgenderism transsexuality i had never heard of that i grew up in a very rural area and i i just started doing what i had always been doing and that's researching so i went on the internet and like the way that i figured out what trans was was by like reading a study that was like published in 2005 or something about trans people
0: (laughs) are you what what do your parents do Are you, Um, uh, are you part of the academic uh, household?
1: Not really. I mean, um, my father does programming. I don't want to like reveal too much because it's like a little bit doxy, Um, but he's like, he's quite a good programmer. And my mother, she was like a stay at home mom for a while. And then she, um, she ran her own business. So yeah. Okay.
0: So you arriving on the scene with this uh, just academic mind wasn't, totally how did they deal with that because it could be a complete anomaly living in the role and then all of a sudden you have like this savant uh, or like no this is kind of part of who we are as a family
1: <laughs> i mean i don't think i'm a savant but um
0: i mean 11 yeah. year old looking up research papers is kind of savanty
1: i think i was a few years older by that time okay. i was probably like 13 or 14. yeah so um yeah i don't i don't know why <laughs> I did that but yeah that's that's um for whatever reason when i was you know 11 or 13 or 14 that's what i thought was the the best way to learn it and it worked but um yeah i don't i don't know it's hard to say you can like invent stories right i could be like you know one of the things my father did is he like taught me math when i was very young and that like helped me a lot in education and maybe like i i took that and that was the seed that led me to eventually years later like yeah setting research papers well, i don't know um in
0: another way to reframe to get to the kind of just the same understanding of you and your life is what was your imagination life what was your intellectual mm-hmm. life were you a storyteller were you an artist like how did you i guess it sounds like you're really into dialogue and yeah
1: debate. yeah that's accurate um you're,
0: kill streaming on the farm back before there kill were kill
1: streams streaming. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah no um i would actually actually like grew up partly on a farm and there was a there was a white peacock there that's what i remember an albino peacock it was crazy and um i remember just like taking books out there and just like reading in like riverbed ditches so yeah very very okay. rural life stuff but um yeah. i um it was the the question was about
0: your creativity, like where creativity,
1: did you yeah. I mean, dialogue. I I've always been interested in writing. I think um, I I draw a little bit too. I've posted some of my digital art online, but I'm not, you know, I'm not amazing with the brush or anything. But I think that I've always found a lot of beauty in argumentation, like you said, kill streaming mm-hmm. and. I think that that's always attracted me because of this, you know, this truth to it, this way of like getting towards a very deep understanding of the world.
0: Okay. And yourself and everything else between. Mm -hmm. So what about socially? Um, You're going through like this change physically. How are you plugged into the social world and people around you your age and how they're developing? How do you cogitate if they're on a different path than you or are you the odd person out or? I
1: mean, shockingly, I did not get bullied really much at all. I think one person called me um, the F-slur for like a gay person and that was pretty much the extent of it. So socially, I think I did pretty well. I didn't have like a ton of friends. I think part of that was just, it wasn't exactly that people were like bullying me, but just like people were a little bit wary of me, especially after transitioning. So I had a very, um, I spent a lot of time online (laughs) and that's kind of where I develop a lot of my tendencies that I have now. For example, I would post pictures on Reddit, like selfies. When I was 15, 16 years old. And I would get insane DMs from people, like people saying like, oh, you are just like jailbait or whatever, like creepy stuff. Um, And then I would also get people saying things like, you know, I can't believe you have these politics. You actually need to check out these guys. And then they're linking me like dark enlightenment, rationality pages. And I'm getting links to like, this is what people on 4chan on poll Are talking about you. And I'm 16 years old and I go to a thread and it's people talking about like, is it based to have like femboy wives, like you know, the Romans or the Greeks or whatever? And this is like a debate that they're having. Like, what is what is the most based way to um, to handle this? And they're posting pictures of me to like prove it, and I'm this like child. And so then I'm on poll and I'm arguing with these people and I'm posting memes and I'm telling them to like KYS themselves and (laughs) <laughs> I'm like in the trenches as this minor, and yeah, it's kind of not surprising that I end up here.
0: Okay. Um, so I, I talk about gender, it always gets to sexuality because they're right? in my mind they're inextricably linked. So how do you deal with your own? desire for other people and then this massive amount of desire from the internet to you like how do you how do you process that as a minor as you're as a teenager how do you how do you deal with that
1: well as a teenager it feels good right you don't really have a conception of what boundaries. is like appropriate or yeah what is boundaries what is healthy and if you are someone who doesn't feel like people are attracted to you in your day-to-day life so like You don't have guys who are like hitting on you and yet you're very interested in the guys around you. And so you have this kind of lack of attention and then suddenly you're getting a lot of attention online that feels nice. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, And so I think that that was, yeah. I mean, that was definitely like a motivating factor that drew me more into the internet was this feeling of like, I feel like I'm attractive, but I also feel like people are not appreciating that in my, you know, in my tiny rural Colorado town. And then, you know, I graduate, I end up graduating high school and a lot of people are like, Oh, I actually was very attracted to you, but I, you know, I never said it at the time. So amazing. But like you don't really understand that as a kid. And so this, this internet seduction is very interesting to you.
0: What's your, um, the trajectory of your transition? When did it start?
1: I you said you stumbled came out on when the... I was 14. 14,
0: yeah. okay. And mm-hmm. um, what year was this? In, uh, world this was time? 2014. 2014, mm-hmm. okay. You're a millennial baby. Indeed, um, indeed. Hmm. 2014, so I guess it was still, it was already starting to become more, there was more awareness publicly in, by 2014.
1: I remember I came out, just before Caitlyn Jenner okay so I remember that being a big thing and people being like wow you're like Caitlyn Jenner
0: and did you have um, was there a gender specialist or did you do something private before you went public or coming out or you already engaged with the medical uh, side of things by
1: the I ended up traveling uh, six hours up north to Denver where I met with a a gender endocrinologist at, like, this big hospital because there was nothing elsewhere, and I I went through him, and I remember we met with him and he, it took probably, like, eight months before I started, like, puberty blockers, and then it took another, a little while, um, maybe six months, before I started estrogen, and it was because he wanted me to present as a woman and to, you know, or as, as a girl to try that and to see how it felt and to really take it very slowly. So there was a lot of hoops at that time, especially, I mean, for an adolescent where you have to meet with a psychologist at home. You have to get like these letters of therapy recommendation. You have to meet with this guy in Denver. And then he says, okay, well, we're going to be really slow. We're going to put you on like a temporary blocker, and then see how you feel, you know, et cetera, and et cetera. And that kind of that progresses naturally.
0: How was your um, attitude towards the patience of the adults um, and the, the slowness of this process?
1: <laughs> I mean, it feels agonizing when you're a teenager, yeah. and then when you get to be an adult, you're like, "Oh, that's very important, actually." <laughs>
0: okay. Do you, like, looking back now, do you feel like they did good by you?
1: Um, yeah, I think they. I think they did Panacea, and I think it's really not. And I think that it would be better if the adults in my life had kind of encouraged me also to pursue a level of you know personal development in addition to the transition. So, like, Hmm. um, you know, learning just like make peace with your own mind, learning kind of like these spiritually developmental techniques like you know meditation or you know religion whatever whatever it may be in people's lives and i think that when i was younger i really relied on transition to just kind of like make me whole and that is it turns out not a good strategy to do
0: okay um so you said for so 15 you start um estrogen and puberty blockers yeah how, how did the puberty blockers affect your mood and your energy levels and uh, your psychology?
1: Um, they made me feel very excited, very comfortable. Because I think that I had the sense that, okay, well, now I've bought time. That facial hair that had caused me so much distress, it was, you know, I no longer grew it. And so then there was this feeling of like, this sigh of relief, like this inevitable future of being a man was no longer the case mm-hmm. you know at least not looking like a man in the way that i feared and hmm. so that you know i remember i would administer the injections to myself and every time that i did i i would just get this like you know big sense of of relief from that hmm.
0: and so uh what about like so your testosterone levels what they plateau or they go down right
1: they went like way, way down, yeah.
0: Okay. Did that affect your uh, energy? Testosterone's kind of strong, so missing it, I guess you, you had experience of it, and then you have experience without. Could you tell the difference? Uh,
1: I mean, the biggest thing maybe is like, you know, libido. I, you know, I went from having like teenage boy libido to having like, you know, basically no libido. As far as energy, I personally you know, it has been so long nothing like stuck out to me quite mm-hmm. frankly
0: and how did the estrogen uh, how did you take to that
1: i think well i started with like such a low dose that it was kind of like nothing for a long time and then also like you say gender is so connected to sexuality i noticed that as the estrogen increased i had like a lot more um sexual impulse within me. So like I went from feeling kind of asexual and going throughout high school as this kind of like androgynous person who just didn't really like care that much about their presentation to suddenly looking at people around me and being like, oh, I'm very interested in having them be attracted to me. And so I like started learning makeup and whatnot because I you know, wanted boys to hit on me. And so I think the estrogen kind of it brought back my sexuality a little bit and that changed my behavior.
0: Huh. And this is all in the same school. So everybody mm-hmm. watched you transition. Yeah. You transition in in place. Mm-hmm. How do you how did you as a teenager square the uh the puzzle—it's a puzzle. So there's uh, heterosexual man and woman attraction, and then there's homosexual male male female female attraction, and then there's, I guess, transsexual male to trans male attraction. So you so do you are you looking for a guy who's comfortable being gay but not gay, or like like how do you find a mate in that you know uh, like puzzle?
1: This sounds exactly like something my grandma asked me. Okay. <laughs> Just like the way you <laughs> phrase it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. How do I say this? Um When I was transitioning, I think that like one of the reasons that I ended up transitioning, like I remember writing this down was like the ability to date men who are interested in women. Um, and so. I think that trans women, they tend to date straight men and straight men, you know, they can look at a curvy piece of driftwood and be aroused by it. I think that like, you know, straight male sexuality, it's very visual based. And that visualization of a partner is oftentimes like not that discriminatory. And so, you know, this is why you see like a massive explosion of transgender uh pornography and consumption of it men tend to tend to be interested in this i believe that there's this like Mm -hmm. i forget what it's called it's maybe called like a million wicked whims or something like this this like Mm -hmm. old talk old book um that i remember being kind of interested in but it part of what it does is it puts forth and understanding of the differences between male and female sexuality and how each of these manifest in some kind of interesting ways. And so like the fact that men's sexuality is like so visual, it tends to manifest in like the interesting way of oftentimes being attracted to trans women when really that makes like no actual biological or evolutionary sense Hmm. to like be aroused at this person who like you cannot procreate with at all. And I believe that their their hypothesis was that like certain aspects of the trans woman basically like read in the brain as female and so they'll like activate that that same like arousal pathway. But then also like the image of a penis does not actually like detract from that because the brain is like having a hard time understanding that it's attached to the same organism and so like mm-hmm. the image of a penis alone can actually increase arousal by like stimulating like a sexual competition desire and so like you combine both of these in the same in- image of a person oh, and it wow. can like heighten the arousal for some men so i believe that was like one of the theories but um my personal experience is that like gay men are not that interested in me and straight men usually are and they're usually somewhat confused by that mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's my personal experience
0: what there's the so it sounds like to to go Blanchardian, uh mm-hmm. the researcher laid out a typology of transsexual he split it into two kind of categories there's the autogynophile and the homosexual transsexual it sounds like you're more of the homosexual transsexual do you have a an erotic i'm Really sorry. This is kind of personal. You don't have to answer. it. Do you have an erotic uh, erotic relationship to yourself as a woman? Or is it is it less erotic and cuz you you've had a desire since you were very young to be so how does your own like er- eros like interact with being as you are?
1: Um, and becoming. Yeah. So very familiar with Blanchard's typology. I think that there's parts of it that I believe. So I believe that AGP exists. And I think that it exists in a lot of trans women. Personally, I think that AGP exists in me, but I don't think that it exists in the way that maybe most people understand AGP. So there's this surface level understanding of AGP, which is like you get aroused when you put on like women's clothes or like fishnets and stockings, that kind of thing. That is not my experience. So when I like get dressed in the morning, it's not an arousing experience for me. It never has been arousing to like wear women's clothing. But I am like, so I've talked about my attraction to men. I'm also attracted to women. And I think that I do have this sense of like autosexual arousal it's a little bit hard to pin down, Hmm. but the way that I I know that there is an element of that in my sexuality is that when I am imagining sexual scenarios, it is important to me to imagine myself and like how I look and like whether or not I look quite attractive will increase the Hmm. sexual interest that I have in that scenario, right? And so like, if I am hmm. reading a story that is describing a sexual encounter, it can just describe like a partner. So it might just describe like, you know, you do this, you do that. Um, well, imagine that the story's in second person and I'll find that interesting. But if it also describes like, and you look this way and have these features, that might increase the interest for me. And so for me, I think that there is some autosexual element to that, but it only really comes up during sex. Now, the debate around this is like whether or not this also applies to cis women. And it seems like it does in a sense. And so it seems like when you give cis women um, the same surveys for autosexual arousal as you give trans women, they score as being AGP. Now, I don't think that they're truly AGP. Because AGP is this very unique situation where the person is not actually female. So, like, I'm not actually a woman. I'm not actually female, yeah. and yeah. yet my brain is like interested in viewing me this way, which is yeah. unusual. It's not unusual for like a cis woman to be interested in that. I don't think. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it it makes sense. This is kind of like a, a meme or kind of a right wingish thought that a woman. There was a, actually an interesting thread. I think it was from some sort of dark enlightenment-ish kind of uh, Twitter account about how on TikTok there's this phenomena called the POV uh, or the point of view, like point of view when you do this and do that and it's women doing that point of view you you missed your bus in the morning or point of view you you work at google but it's not point of view it's it's all about them so they're they're inverted and you see the phenomena of the selfie is basically a very feminine thing to do like hmm. you want to be attractive you want to be seen as attractive so in a you know any sort of uh, romantic or erotic encounter I think it is a, a component to be adored and to be worshipped and to be uh, aesthetically pleasing is a part of the pleasure. So it makes it makes sense when a man is like that. Then I think it can be not a not a paraphilia or anything like that. But when a man puts himself in the position of being the attractive one, it doesn't well, it can see...
1: definitely be a paraphilia. Like it, you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it is unusual. And I just some seem, people, it seems like
0: we normally have a different relationship to looking good than women do. It just seems like it. I don't know how to articulate it in the moment, but go on.
1: No, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And not only is that the case, but also if you have this paraphilia of autogen autogenophilia, you might be aroused merely By the thought of yourself being like attractive, right? So, the other partner in the sexual scenario that you're being aroused by might not matter at all or might matter only a very small amount. And so, I think that that is very common among trans women specifically, that is like less common among cis women, where they might look at pornography or consume erotic material that is very focused on what their self insert character is doing and they are aroused by the idea of being that character right and the way that a man might be aroused by like imagining that woman um and being like attracted to her but doesn't necessarily need to imagine having sex with her to have that arousal hmm.
0: what are the ethics of transition from your point of view what I, and by that i mean um another personal question I guess you would you'd have to I would have to assume a lot to even uh, about your your moral framework to even properly ask this question. So I guess I, I'm going to ask the question, then you can try to figure out what I mean or, or, or fill in the blanks there. But you were given a body, your body had a natural path, and you are modifying that path. Like um, so, you're making an intentional impact on your own health, on your own body, um, and I guess in a Western liberal point of view you should be free to do whatever you want, but there might be actually, you're kind of responsible for your your living entity. So how do, what what are the ethics for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you believe that your body is a gift from God and that like, it is your responsibility to take care of it for, you know, the future, then I don't think you can, I think it's very hard to justify transition. I'm a secular person, so I don't believe in God. I'm an agnostic, but, um, the way that I view it is kind of the way that I view like the people who take steroids and who like make their bodies huge and who are big into like, um, bodybuilding. And I've watched a lot of their content. It kind of fascinates me because I really see myself as like the same side of the, or, you know, the other side of the coin to them. And that coin is like, this like male, desire to change and modify your own body and they're going in one direction with it and i'm going in the other direction with it and theirs can be like very oftentimes very destructive like a lot of these guys they're they're dying at 40 and it's not through you know suicide not like an active you know they're not shooting themselves in the head but they are like destroying their bodies and their livers in order to achieve this kind of Physical perfection, this ideal. And I think that that is like a very relatable thing to me. Because I I remember being like young and thinking about all of the things that I could do, right? Like I could, you know, become a pianist. I could, you know, perform at concert halls. I could do this or that or that. And one of the things that interested me was like this ideal of like beauty and like how do I embody that? And that fascinated me because it's such a hard problem. It is so difficult to modify yourself. and we are in so many ways bound by our bone structure and by our physiology and our sex and all of these things. And so that seems like a very ambitious problem to me. And so I think that was one of the one of the things that interested me. So that's that's kind of how I see it as this kind of personal quest or development. What I think is important about that framing is that it's not a life or death thing. Like I don't need to transition to live. And I think that a lot of people have been sold this lie that like transition is necessary to survive. And if you don't transition, you're gonna kill yourself or your children are gonna kill yourself, etc. And I think that's like a very destructive way to view it because you are basically putting the person in this position where they're fragile. And if they don't do this thing, they're going to be destroyed. When the reality is you are not fragile. You are actually very resilient and you will survive with or without transition. And you will survive whether or not people gender you correctly or not. And if you want, I think, to like pursue this additional thing, I think that people have... I think people should have the freedom to do that but i don't think that people should view this as like you know a matter of mortal necessity nor do i think they should use that view of mortal necessity as like a kind of political bludgeon which i think oftentimes happens so i'm very controversial in the trans community for for this view, but, um, yeah. that is more or less how I feel it.
0: There's a theory that's connected to Blanchard and I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's called erotic target. Uh, location error or fixation yeah. and uh, which which kind of describes um, it's a theory about how a man is for for autogynophiles, a man who desires himself as a woman there's like this fixation that usually in in a non-paraphilic male is focused on I want to be with women or I want to do women and that somehow has shifted to I want to be and do myself as a woman kind of thing. And what you made me think of is uh, comparing the transition um, project, right? Um, which is pretty much, uh, it's, there's no end to it. There's, there's, there's actually no end to it. There's no target there because you could go all the way to, to shaving your clavicles, to, to fixing your voice, to just doing so many different things. Um, but rather than, so as, as an artist myself, and I'm, I'm a recovering artist myself, my desire was to embody beauty in something outside of me, to create beauty. So the embodiment, the, the aesthetic target was fixated on creating something that would arouse people's beauty, but it wasn't me, like I would want to create that whereas I, I and but with bodybuilding or transition the project of transition it, that that aesthetic is pointed to the self i am that which embodies the beauty and that that which is related to somebody who wants to be a singer who wants to be a performer like i want to embody this thing it's just something uh interesting and taken to i mean it's kind of inherently masculine to really be a perfectionist about one thing to like put all your eggs in in one basket. It's kind of a masculine, typical, like go all out. I'm going to be a CEO. I'm going to, I'm going to be this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess the ethics in that um, formulation is more about self-control, moderation, knowing when you're going too far, knowing when it's uh, not actually helping you. So how do you put that in its place? Knowing that transition could be all consuming, say enough is enough, or I only need so much.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that transition is unique as a kind of medical solution, right? So there's this like aesthetic element and this medical element. And in regards to the medical element, you have people with an issue, which is gender identity disorder, and that manifests in all of this kind of psychological suffering. And oftentimes people will prescribe transitioning for that. Well, you should you know, change your appearance, do all these things, da, da, da. But transition is unique in that it is one of these medical prescriptions where if you do it for two years and you're not feeling better, the solution is not, well, maybe we'll try something else. It's oftentimes double down. So it's like, well, you haven't felt good so far, so now get surgery. Still don't feel good, get the next surgery, et cetera, and et cetera. And this is kind of like very deeply pernicious <laughs> because you can trap people. In this medical cycle, where they're not getting better, and they're convinced that the way to get better is to keep going down the same path. Okay. So, that I think is very dangerous. I think that if you are pursuing something, you know, because you have been misled to believe that it'll it'll fix you, and it's not, um, you can you can kind of get stuck. In regards to an aesthetic pursuit, I think that is kind of it's a different question but it you know it has a similar answer which is if you are pursuing some sort of change and you're doing the same thing over and over and you're not getting a result so like people who will get a nose drop and they'll get a second nose drop and a third and it's because they have this vision of like the perfect nose in their mind and it turns out that every time you modify the nose you can push it in that direction you can also push it push it past that direction but it's very hard to actually get it exactly on so i think you have to like you have to understand you can't necessarily reach it um and that at a certain point you're you're doing damage to your nose so i mean maybe that's just like obvious life advice but like you got to accept a certain level of imperfection with these things
0: mm-hmm. and then plus you add age to it so if, if you if you aim for something yeah. and then you're going to age, you just kind of have to accept yourself at some point. If that's not always operating in the background or an yes. anchor, you need an anchor at some point, either solving a problem or or reaching a, a plateau.
1: Yeah, no, so this is a very good point. And it is something that I want to talk about. I think that earlier I said that I wish adults in my life had given me something else to work on, some sort of personal development or fulfillment. I think that's because there are all sorts of things that people can orient in their life as their goal or, you know, their meaning. Yeah, exactly. And people can choose to worship like beauty, right? Make that their orientation and they will pursue that and they will destroy themselves in that pursuit. But ultimately it can be like a very fruitless goal because In pursuing beauty, you find yourself always to be too ugly, always falling up short. And the same is true if you pursue money. You you, you always feel poor. So I think that it's very important to orient yourself towards something that is transcendent. So religion, I think, can be one of these ways to do it. There are other ways to do it. I think people who are very into like Stoic philosophy or, you know, Aristotelian ethics. These are all good ways to orient yourself towards the transcendent. So I think that, like, to the extent that you pursue beauty in your life, it cannot be your source of meaning. You have to get meaning from something that is beyond yourself.
0: Yeah, or or the the beauty has a purpose. Um...
1: Families have a lot going on.
0: one becomes beautiful to attract or to be attracted to somebody that they love and the beauty facilitates or serves something higher the the love you know you put everything in, in service of something higher
1: yeah exactly so like you know i don't think there's anything wrong with like making yourself look beautiful if making yourself look beautiful is one of the ways that like enables you to feel comfortable going out into public being pleasant with people you know developing like connections and you know building your community and doing it in a way where you're not you know smelling like you haven't showered in 40 days maybe that's not the best thing right i don't think that's like vain to do because i think that ultimately like what you're doing is something very positive and pro-social yeah
0: so beyond transition
1: beyond transition
0: Intellectually, so we started before we get sidetracked in, into your personal life story. Uh, we, you're, we're we talking about Sargon and and uh, the, 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 you know your relationship with the internet and people are like saying like, you're like the based femboy. How do we deal with you? And like, oh, you should read dark enlightenment stuff. So, what what is your intellectual development, your political development, and uh, over through through high school? Did you end up going to college? I did go to
1: college. Yeah. yeah.
0: What did you focus on?
1: Uh, business. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was like, "Why aren't you studying philosophy?" And I was like, "Philosophy is not going to um get me a job." <laughs> but I think that business has kind of turned out to be a very good source of study for me because so much of the optimization that we see in the world is occurring in the private realm. Hmm. And I think that understanding economics and the organization of these corporate structures, which, you know, I think it's Yarvin who was saying that like the industrial revolution was really like a corporate revolution where people developed this like way of engaging with each other, holding each other liable and getting people to coordinate their efforts. And that turned out to be extremely efficient. And so, this kind of systematic understanding of business is something that I've transferred into my understanding of politics. Trying to understand what is the optimal structure for a government, and how might that work? Okay,
0: and why are you interested in politics, and what's your what's your history of that? Like, I guess you you, you became a. It's just something fast. Why is it it's fascinating? It's pathological. To me? Oh, really? Okay.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think that fuck, why is it interesting to me? I have just had a long time to think about it. I guess it's like a hobby in many ways. Um, but also, you know, just trying to get to the truth of these big questions that are very difficult to solve that we don't really have answers for. I, I view myself as kind of a political agnostic. So it's oftentimes difficult for me to pin myself down politically. I um, I believe that like the one constant in all of my politics is that I'm not totally sure what is true. And I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, that is the case for most people. Most people are not omniscient. And there is a chance that people are wrong. And I think the beautiful thing about markets is that they allow people to test ideas. And if they're right, they get rewarded. And if they are not right, they get punished, hmm. they fail. Yeah. And I think that we need something like that for policy and for government, where people are allowed to test a lot of ideas yeah. and see what works. And so that is kind of part of my, my political viewpoint. And inspired uh, so that's by people a, like, like who? Like Hoppe and um, Yarvin and Burnham, yeah. all of these all of these classics.
0: It's really difficult to experiment with politics though because you're you're dealing with like power structures that can go terribly horribly awry because they have so much power
1: yeah exactly i mean i think that like my solution it's not a very original one but it's the the right of exit and it's choice so you Hmm. allow people to create like a parallel power structure in the united states and you allow that power structure to let people in if they want to and then you make it so people have the right to leave at any time for any reason. And so if it becomes tyrannical, uh, you expect people to leave. Yeah, and you yeah. maybe create some some rules around, you know, that power structure can do everything but take steps to prevent people from leaving or make it hard for people to leave, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing.
0: I was just speaking yesterday with Jane Gatsby about this. Um, it was about, uh, she probably right about the same age as you working through the same kind of questions as you. And she had the same idea. And I, uh, you know, the problem is, is that
1: uh, wait, how many days ago did you talk to her about this?
0: Yesterday? It's not published yet.
1: Though. Okay. That's so interesting. Cause I, I messaged her almost exactly my viewpoint on that on like Thursday.
0: Oh, <laughs> so. okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> I should have had you guys in conversation then. Maybe I will, um, at some point, but, um, Without a sense of belonging, without a sense of like, I belong to this country or this country belongs to me. Mm-hmm. Like there's a balance between being able to exit and having a sense of belonging. And that's just one of the ideas. And it's not necessarily my opinion. It's just one of the ideas that I hear in my mind. And it's kind of Dave, the distributist voice, you know, and Aaron and McIntyre, like the, these right wing, young right wing thinkers who are saying we, we need you know blood and soil though it's, it's there's a pathology in blood and soil there's still a reality to to being rooted and to belonging to something and having a structure that is completely optional and everything based on consent, it erodes that fabric. And that's how we get to liberalism. And that's how you open yourself up to uh, not having any antibodies to something like what we call wokeness, which is a pathological moralizing force that is organizing all institutions towards itself, because there was no sense of belonging. And now there's a sense of purpose that comes through. And it's not just wokeness, because wokeness is a, is a, a part of a lineage and... Jarvin takes it all the way back to the Quakers, but i you can just say that the civil rights movement, that moral cathedral that America has been building, like that Telos, that end, that divine um, aspiration of equality and justice for all, or whatever that is, is that is a is a moral force that organizes in the organizational uh, corporate structure of a government you can't just have money, there has to be some sort of pride and other kind of, uh, Other emotions that bind people together or what do you do with those emotions and you see corporations over the past 20 years or so try to adopt more cultural aspects more kind of creepy cultish kind of stuff we're a family here we we, we're trying to develop a sense of belonging because they want to maximize on you know the, the benefits of of having people devote themselves to the company by by making the company itself seem more human so there's just a lot of tensions there and
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think people do have this preference for the land that they're connected to. So I have this feeling very strongly when I go back to Colorado and I look at the mountains, I feel at home and I feel a special kind of like right to those mountains where I can go to Denver, and it seems very flat compared to where I grew up. And I think, oh, these like these lowlanders, they're trying to rule over us from their state capital. That's true mountain folk. We you know we deserve our our own our own government. And you know it's silly, but like that psychology is like very motivating for a lot of people. I think that the way to view states, and this is something that I'm working on, I think we need language to understand politics. That is more general than what it is currently. And I think that like states, they're kind of these like these computational organisms. And people like Yarvin want them to just be very efficient, right? He's like obsessed with efficiency. And in his Patrick, you know, thing, he talks about like turning the undesirables into biofuel and all of these, all of these ideas that are like, you know, probably totally crazy and will never work because There's something unique about humans, and that's that humans are not like purely efficient creatures. We are not like Homo economicus. So you have this like computational structure, and the way that that computational structure works is by engaging humans, which are inefficient. And the way to engage them, the way to bridge that gap, I think is to work with humans in the way that works for them. And so one of the ways that works for humans is to, is to acknowledge this like this deep connection that people have to the land. So I, I don't actually mm-hmm. see efficiency as being antithetical to these sort of like spiritual uh, longings that people have in them. I think that the way you get humans to be their happiest and most productive is by enabling that to some degree. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: when I talk about like parallel structures of efficient governance, It is not in the sense that I expect everyone to be machines. It's that I expect the government to efficiently engage with real and messy humans in a way that works for real and messy humans efficiently. Um, And that means distributing people in a way that allows them to feel connected to their homeland and whatnot.
0: Distributing people in a way. Why, Why did you use the word distributing?
1: distributing as far as like um location wise right okay. so like allowing people to so for example like let's say you have um you create like a, a zone in the united states and you auction off that zone to the highest bidder and you say whoever can own this zone uh can like extract taxes from whoever lives there you know do whatever your your own little kingdom there so someone buys that and they start you know developing on it Well, a lot of people are not going to want to move there just because they're they're connected to their own homeland, right? Wherever that is. But then as people move there, there are going to be some people who don't want to leave uh, because they feel especially connected to that place. If you've lived in this zone for a few generations, you might feel very connected to the land in a way that isn't like purely rational, right? And so the worry maybe in some sense is that, well, if the owners of this zone are very tyrannical. Um, People might still stick there even, even though it's tyrannical. And I think some people will say like, oh, this isn't, you know, quote unquote efficient because we're not maximizing for liberty or whatever. And I would challenge that. I would say like, no, this is actually is efficient because these people are doing what they want to do, which is to live within this what you see as tyrannical area because they love the, the actual natural world. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like if, if people are staying where they want to stay, they ought to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. I'm I, just, cause I, I'm speaking to you now about this and I was speaking about uh, with Jane with this and and actually I'm, I'm now thinking about all the different right wingers I've had over the past month and just kind of listening and reading through them. A lot of them, Are Americans, and Mm. there is a very particular kind of American sense of experimentation. And I'm just trying to think like, you can't do that in Europe. You couldn't do, you couldn't run this experiment in Europe. And that makes the thought experiment go in this weird direction or just these thoughts go in a weird direction because you have all these people who are tied to their land for so long, but then World War II happens and they're basically just kind of a satellite state of America and they're more disconnected. It just seems like they're kind of, they're not as connected to their land as as one would suppose or there's this other kind of liberal idea that kind of disconnects. This globalism... So even, even just the thought experiments that are coming up in the right-wing discourse about being going back to a connection to land, going back to a connection to place, it's in, conne- it's in contention with this kind of globo homo, as they call it, or this global homogenization, this cosmopolitan way of viewing things. So that's just one of the tensions in the political discourse that defines this particular strain of right-wing thinking, as opposed to, I guess, a liberal way of thinking.
1: Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. And earlier I talked about how the state kind of interfaces with people in order to get people to, you know, be efficient. It wants people to be like happier and well-fed and et cetera, et cetera. The caveat with that is that like the things that cause the state to be like more productive um, are things that create like abundance, right? So When people are adding to the economy in ways that creates like lots of resource abundance for people, that's very good from like uh, a GDP growth, a GDP maximization perspective. And that's good for like the state survival insofar as the state can like then harness that GDP growth, that kind of technology that comes out of it into, you know, protecting your borders. Um, you know existing into the future protecting their ideological project etc the problem is that abundance is not necessarily the end all be all of human well-being right so land is kind of one of these areas where you know the economy can the economy can distribute land to people in a way that is like maximizing their well-being in a sense but I think the economy is not so good at distributing to people like spiritual well-being. And that is because oftentimes spiritual well-being comes in conflict with abundance and the creation of abundance. So earlier we talked about beauty and the desire to like pursue this you know more and more and more, and to be kind of stuck on this treadmill. Where you always feel ugly. Well, I think at the root of that is really its want, its desire, and so I think people find themselves in situations where they want all of these things, they want all of these material items, and they can get them, but it doesn't actually, and they'll feel a little bit better for a moment, but it doesn't actually like sate this want in any like deeper way, and so I think that like the way to be truly happy is to. Like, understand that want on a deep level and to overcome it. But the problem is that if you overcome that want, then you're less incentivized to be like constantly producing things. And so, Hmm. this is actually like not so good. If you imagine like two countries, one, everyone is like a great consumer and they're constantly trying, they're on this like treadmill, this um, rat race of like producing things, consuming things. And then you have another country where 50% of the people are just content with nothing. So they live very simple lives, they don't buy a lot of things, they don't produce a lot of things. They're just they're very spiritually fulfilled, they have like great connections with people, but they're not actually really growing the economy that much. Well, then you look at these two countries, project them out, you know, 100, 200, 1000 years, which one's going to be a lot bigger and have a lot more technology? It's going to be the country with people who really want things, right? Mm -hmm. And so, want has simultaneously driven the creation of pretty much every fantastic and wonderful and beautiful thing, um, technology-wise, that we have. So, like, you know, we have lights because someone wanted, you know, to be able to read in the dark. People, you know, have all of these great microphones and et cetera, because ultimately there's this, like, want at at the heart of that to have the bigger and better thing. Yeah. You know, of course, you can come up with like a few inventions, but that's not the case. But like broadly speaking, and so I think that there's like fundamental tension, and that tension really comes from the fact that like survival and survival of the political organism is not always the kindest to the entities that make up the organism. In this case, humans. So I think we we run up into that tension, especially when you get to the right wing, um, these thinkers who are really asking deep questions about what it means to live a good life and to live a spiritually fulfilled life. And I think that the answer to that is different from what is going to create the greatest state. And that's, that's an issue. But um, hmm. in my life, I kind of approach that with, A sense of acceptance and almost a little bit of nihilism. I see this as, on the long scale, a process of entropy. And that is inevitable. It is, or there's a caveat to that, but like entropy is inevitable. Um, The state growing and becoming more efficient is an evolutionary advantage for the state. And that's not necessarily best for the human. But I think that what we can do as individuals is. Try to move the state in a position where it is simultaneously creating abundance, but it is not so tied to that abundance that it isn't that it is unable to allow people to seek spiritual development.
0: Yeah. So a and lot this, said there, yeah, no, thank you. And um, I I brought this up with uh, Jane too because she's she's running. Um, these thought experiments of like alternative political systems and alternative kind of civilizations. And I kept on like, well, what's the, what's the aesthetic level? What's the religious level? What's the, uh, and by, and I had to define what I mean by religious, because I, I don't think that you can have a bunch of people engaged on a society level without some sort of mythological and ethical framework that they're, existing within. And so one of Dave's, uh, the distributist critique of liberalism is that liberalism assumes these ethics that aren't actually inherent in liberalism. They assume kind of this rational Christian bred kind of understanding of individuals and the sanctity of individuals that's not explicitly stated within liberalism. It's kind of already assumed that people are going to behave in certain ways in order for liberalism. To run. Um, So when we engage in these conversations about dealing with the state, and what everything that you were just saying was the relationship between spiritual entities and this, I guess one technical word is egregore, or this non-human, superhuman entity called the state, like this corporation, Mm -hmm. this 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 mass of people that has a completely different. spiritual vibration of its own as opposed to the individuals in it. And the way to balance those things is some form of codified mythology and ethic. So that's what I think. That's just my proposition. I don't know. I I don't have anything to prescribe um, to any given things. I don't know how we participate in a pluralistic society without the more radical factions eventually taking over. But... In your own adventures, like what do you end up gravitating toward to to nourish yourself, or as uh, kind of not even just personally, but when you're thinking through these things, like you need to have like a, a coat hook that you hang something that would be like religion on. What would that religion kind of be like, or that ethical mythological framework, if you need if you see a need for that in thinking through these questions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do see a need for that. I the unsatisfying answer is that I like don't have a specific book that I can point to. Um, I try very hard to ground myself in the people around me and the relationships that I have with people, and I try to be good to them in you know all the ways that you know those Christian ethics that I'm kind of steeped in, demand one to be good. And I think that is like a big grounding point for me. So for all the all the craziness online, I am very fortunate to have a very strong relationship with uh, with my girlfriend. And I think that a lot of stability in my life kind of projects outward from that. So like I've also worked very hard to develop a lot of friendships and I've got my my ring of people. And now I'm working harder on trying to also develop more, more of that like community relationship. So like, all do you um charity work with my girlfriend, planting trees, or just going out and trying to feel like connected to the place where you live in? And I see all of that as kind of spiritually nourishing for me. I you know i think that's something that i have to develop as i as i continue to get older especially as someone who often feels like it's very difficult to connect to traditional religious institutions um and like i said i i'm agnostic so i don't have this like driving impetus whereas you know if i believed in the catholic god that would be a very simple answer then in a sense, because it's, well, you, you go to go to your church and you listen to your, you know, your spiritual guidance, uh, whether it be a rabbi or a monk or whoever. But in lieu of not having that, I think it's very hard to build something because you're so vulnerable to the biases of your own mind it's so easy to build an ethical system that just allows you to do whatever you already want to do mm-hmm. and that's something that I am really aware of um, in my life where not having like a strong cultural connection or religious connection to a pre-existing faith that I could, throw myself into and accept the precepts of and know that at the very least I'm not biased by my own psychological preferences and instead I'm going off of you know the received wisdom of many, many generations. Not having that, I'm in kind of a vulnerable position, but I think also recognizing that you yeah. you you develop what you can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It as long as one is humble in their agnosticism, and because uh, I'm functionally agnostic, um, not actually agnostic, but I'm functionally agnostic because I can suspend my belief. I can I can take my belief off. You know, it serves its function and I have it and it connects me to tradition. It connects me to the world and the order, but I don't need to bring it into everything. I don't need to use it to intercede on behalf of me connecting with any given thing, but not having a roots in a tradition, you are free to think of all these different things. You're free to be agnostic. If, if you're, if you're humble in that, like, and you put it out very well about, knowing that that's limited, knowing that your biases are going to, you're going to, you're going to create your own God, you know, you're going to, you're going to, then you're probably going to put yourself in the center of it, um, you know, because you don't have some other force kind of restraining you and you don't have the process of tradition, thousands of generations fiddling with these lines of thought being in between all these different beliefs in this kind of postmodern pseudo superposition allows you a lot of freedom of movement to play around and stuff. But at some point, the question is, does it, will you need a place? Will you need a sense of belonging? Will you, will you uh, need something greater than, than the experimental, the postmodern, the superposition? Will you need a position, a house, a home? and, and. From what I hear in what you're saying is that you are already aware of that and acting out that need by connecting to human beings, to connecting to doing good works, you know, and and being a real person and and putting the the burden of that um, or investing yourself into being with and being in communion. With others.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I also think that to some extent, culture, society, we need people who are willing to exist in that superposition and to very much challenge old norms. I think that that is the way we grow and adapt. And I think that as an individual, it'd be very good uh, for most people to find that home. But I also think that the people who don't find that home, the the weirdos of the world, I think it's oftentimes those people who are the first to advance new ideas, new ways of thinking that huh. the culture then can react to and adapt in small ways. And if it's working for, you know, some people that will that will ripple out. And I think that's why these old cultural institutions are so powerful. They're so powerful because after thousands of years, they've you know they've chipped at what is working and what is not working. Um, or you know, they've just they've survived by kind of like a last man standing process where like all of the cultures that didn't have effective ways of being for their followers. You know, died out or didn't grow as big, and so the ones that were most successful were the ones with all of the prescriptions and policies for people that allowed them to be, you know, very fulfilled and very productive, and so on. And so I think that, like, either way, I think both of these people, both the the rebel and the square, they're both important. Um, most of Science and progress. It is advanced by people who make these small but deeply important um, improvements on ideas that already exist. And I think that there's like some percentage of people who are totally crazy, and ninety percent of ninety-nine percent of totally crazy people are just totally crazy. And there's not much more to what they're saying. But I think it's in that 1%, those people who are willing to challenge norms and who are also brilliant, who really push things forward. So I think people need to be, in some sense, comfortable with challenging norms when they can truly understand why those norms exist. Um, And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, those ideas disappear. Mm -hmm.
0: The one possible um, advantage over time on the right, whatever that means, is that you have these radical weirdo thinkers, a handful of them, and they don't really align much. They're actually very messy. If you look at right-wing Twitter, uh, not and, I'm, and by right, I don't mean just like conservative, Fox News, geopolitical, federal government level. I mean like the theorists and the, and the memers, you know. they They are on the right, and you can sense, I can sense... In one through line is a respect for the normie, in a way, a respect for stability, the respect for people who are the square. Like there's this mm-hmm. in in the right, there's this relationship between the square and the rebel that that's kind of forming right now that makes it really active and messy on one end, but always kind of like trying to be in dialogue with normalcy, right? Being edgy and normal at the same time. It's and that's a realization that I came to, I don't know when in my life, but kind of understanding myself as a free thinker or an artist uh, or somebody who has to play around with ideas. I can't just accept a doctrine, but I'm not, uh, I don't want to tear down doctrine, but I have to invent it. I have to be, it has to indwell me and I have to regurgitate it and play with it. I have to play with everything is that my entire existence, the realization is that my entire existence relies on people who can accept Mm -hmm. normality, who can be stable because without them, I, I, the, the world, I, I wouldn't work in the world and the world wouldn't work with me in it. So, so developing like a respect for the normie, right. But, but also, and also, uh, developing a sense of myself being different or outside of the normal as not some mark of being special or a mark mm-hmm. of being deficient. It's just, it's different in my job insofar as I can play around is to bring something good back to them. My job is to serve them. And, and because I, I serve at their pleasure, actually. I, I serve at the excess that they've, they've created in society. So that's, that's kind of what makes me more right ideologically, is that I, I, I'm, my job is to playfully add and, and inquire and, and give to that which will persist. And that, that is kind of conservative and, and demeanor
1: interesting um yeah i mean i think there is like a rebel archetype of a person who is like always pushing back and is always kind of contrarian and refuses to be you know part of whatever group they're they're being pigeonholed, to, pigeonholed into i think that is me in a lot of ways like in every group that i've ever been in i've always hated the feeling of not having like, everything just being like totally peaceful. I wanted like a little bit of conflict there. And so like, when I talk with, when I go over to see like my aunts in Michigan or whatever, um, I have an aunt who's very, very conservative and she loves me. And we'll like sometimes talk about like a topic. And I think last time I visited her, it was after like the House stuff. And so I was expressing my views on Rittenhouse and she was like, oh, you're like so, you're so right. Like you're so insightful. This is correct. Da, da, da. But I'm like a little bit uncomfortable in that situation where people are agreeing with me because I don't want to just like reify someone's belief system. I want to like challenge it. So I'm like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> like I do agree with you, but now I want to like find our disagreement and I want to like, find a place where we can challenge each other. Cause I think in that place of challenge, hmm. there's growth. Hmm. Um,
0: it's an interesting little personality quirk you got um, going. That sounds fun though. <laughs> sounds like you have it under control, right? Or do you go around like decimating everybody with your, well, fly them.
1: <laughs> I actually, I used to be much more argumentative in like, Every relationship that I have. And now I'm not so much like that.
0: What was it that kind of changed you or made you wake up or modified, caused you to modify your your relationship to that behavior, that tendency?
1: Um, just a lot of annoying people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was one moment, but yeah, just be like, damn, I <laughs> I argue a lot. And <laughs> sometimes people are upset by that. So, yeah. Mm.
0: So you're, uh, you're softening with age a little bit.
1: I think so. I Just think a little so. Bit.
0: so what, what is your ambition then? What do you want to do? What do you want to build or what are you building? What are you working on? What's your project?
1: Um, I'm really interested in this physicist. His name is Jeremy England. And he has a lot of ideas about the connection between entropy and the development of life and what life is on a very fundamental physical level. And I think that kind of language, we can use it to describe non, uh, non-life, lifelike things that are non-biological, which I think applies to political organizations. And I think using that language, we can come to a much more deep and robust understanding of what politics is and where it's headed. So okay. that's kind of where I'm oh, wow. at now. Okay. And I see it as a synthesis that doesn't really exist in the dialogue right now.
0: Well, there is, um, um, this is a huge, we there's no way we're going to be able to get into this, but you're, I just want to give it a little bit of time, but there, there's kind of this understanding from, from RN McIntyre, Curtis Yarvin, the distributist of the left as entropy or as Cthulhu as the state, as bureaucracy, as entropy and, and cultural entropy as just the constant and why the left always wins, why history is always on the side of the left. Um, But it doesn't really satisfy me and what you're bringing to the table is that it, entropy in relationship to complex systems is how we have life for some reason everything is entropic but then the complex there's there's a complex pathway that rides atop it so so it yes. could, the, the, it's, there's something there
1: i yeah no, i love how you said that because that is the precise conundrum that we're dealing with right the universe is entropic it's increasing in entropy it's becoming more disordered and random if you look at a plant all the atoms in the plant there's a million ways to arrange those atoms that don't result in an ordered uh, structured system that is self-preserving and yet the plant exists Right. So, the statistical fact about entropy, about how things tend to order themselves in, you know, they tend to fall apart, disintegrate, they tend to arrange themselves in ways that don't create something, does not apply in a system where work is being applied to that system. So, we have the sun and it is shooting heat and light and radiation at the earth. And this plant is using that work being applied it to be self-preserving okay. So the reason that the plant doesn't disintegrate and appear into just like a swirl of atoms is because energy is going into the system and that yeah. energy is then being used so yeah. that that relationship between energy um and yeah. the appearance of order is very interesting and one of the reasons why it's interesting is because of its connection to evolution. So every um, biological organism, there is a lower bound on the entropy that it produces. And the more energy that it uses, the higher that lower bound is. But also, the more energy that it uses, it tends to have an evolutionary advantage. So imagine like a plant that's able to utilize a ton of energy from the sun and grow like crazy. That's an evolutionary advantage. But it means the lower bound on entropy production of that plant is higher. So it's going to release more. It's not a perfectly efficient machine thermodynamically. And so there's also going to be a lot more waste, or at least the lower bound is higher. And so I think with systems like the state, they're similar in that the more energy that a government, a state is able to use, the more kind of advantage it has in conflicts against other states. But also the more energy it uses, the more it is pushing the universe towards the state of like final entropy. So, the, Like the
0: one world order? Is that, is that the final state of state entropy?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, and using <laughs> the entirety of the sun, Dyson spheres, the, the image that I use for it is like the Ouroboros, the snake that consumes its own tail. I think that that is like the state that Yarvin is envisioning is the Ouroboros. It's the perfectly efficient state that uses all of its energy until there's no more energy left in its solar system, um, or however far it can reach, there's like a, there's a limit depending on the shift of the universe. But once it's used up all of the energy in its local area, the only thing that it can do is consume itself. And so if we're talking about like efficient systems, that is the inevitable future of the efficient system. And that is not necessarily something that is super desirable for us.
0: (laughs) So, uh, so there's this, um, I'm going to use a metaphor and I'm going to slaughter it, so I shouldn't do it. I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so, Brett Weinstein, uh, Evergreen professor, blah, blah, blah. He has this, uh, he studied these things called telemeters or telometers. Telomeres. telomeres think, oh, no. Telomeres. It might be different. So, there's this yes. trade off between long life.
1: Okay, yeah. Telomeres. Uh,
0: yeah, there's, there's this trade off between uh, battling against cancer and. and like some other factor, like, like our life is measured by these, this trade off between surviving um, and, and, uh, you know, not succumbing to mutations, but developing enough to have a good life or something like that. And so in, I'm trying to take your idea about entropy and complexity in the system. If you have two, if, if the state is completely aimed towards efficiency, (laughs) You probably have something similar to the Nazi thing where it, or a fascistic kind of everything is so uniform that, that the wheels kind of go, or the brakes kind of wear off and and the state just kind of goes into this feedback loop. But if you have a non-entropic state or or an anti-efficient state, something like socialism, um, it just, it, it recreates everything as a bureaucracy and it eventually, um, destroys all efficiency in, in all of its members, right? You have like one state that would be trimmed to be too lean and one and, and forget the human element and the other state that would be trimmed to serve the human element and kind of lose control of efficiency, which I think is what the uh, United States government is, is on the path towards. That's not a perfect metaphor, but...
1: Yeah, no. I mean, I like what you're saying about telomeres. Uh, Teal mirrors, my understanding there are these kind of like aglets, like if you know, like the edges of your shoelaces um, of genetic data on the ends of DNA, I believe, and those become shortened as you get older. So I believe they're like one of the hallmarks of life. There's this researcher in senescence, senescence is like the research of getting older, who talks about entropy as Uh, as its connection to getting older. And his idea is that, like, getting older is informational entropy. And so, like, what is happening in your DNA and all of your body is that when you are bombarded with, like, radiation, all of these little breaks that are happening in in your genetic code, your body is then, like, fixing those up. And oftentimes, it can fix them up in ways that is detrimental. So, like, You'll have skin cells that lose code and so they don't exactly know how to operate as a skin cell. They can become cancerous, et cetera. And it's because of this like constant like um, break and like the body trying to fix it that is like destroying information. And I believe this happens at the epigenetic level. So, um, you have the genetic level, and that is like your DNA. You can actually clone someone who's like 70 years old, and all of the DNA information still exists within them. Um, but there's all these like scratches on the surface of it that prevent it being, from being read correctly. And that's your epigenetics. So that is information loss. And your analogy of that being a kind of entropy is like very perfect because that's absolutely the case. Um, it is just informational entropy. And so, in regards to whether or not a state, you know, how it varies from like very efficient, but maybe losing sight of the human to like focusing only on the human, I also think is insightful because if you focus only on the human, the worry, I think, with that is this fear of like just being overcome by a more efficient state. And so if you have a state that allows people to be spiritually fulfilled, people can be spiritually fulfilled with very little. Like I said earlier, that doesn't necessarily make you a superpower. And so, and that's important really for better or tension. worse.
0: Problem with politics yeah. is that we we are talking about power. We're talking about contest. We're talking about defense and perpetuation.
1: Well, the liberal state too is very efficient, but it's. A byproduct of that efficiency is abundance, so it creates a lot of stuff for people to consume, but it doesn't actually have that spiritual fulfillment. Yeah. And I think that's what people are running up to, both on the right and the left. And hmm. um, liberals will say things like, "Look how much better, you know, life has gotten for people. Look, you have like an iPhone now, right? And that's true. You have abundance, and you will have abundance because the state is very, you know, the economy is very efficient. I'm using the state, like." In a very broad sense here, but like the economy is very efficient, it has all of this innovation. But what is that actually doing for you? And that's what I think people on the right, especially the spiritual kind of right, are asking, and also what uh, socialists and communists are asking.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and uh, so the modification within. Uh, the radical left and I hate using this word. I woke up this, I woke up this morning thinking wokeness and I just don't want to use that fucking word anymore. I'm so tired of the word, but it's so goofy,
1: but it's like, I just use it too.
0: (laughs) So I I I apologize. It is is what it is. Um, but that trying to install that religion into a state and that religion Mm -hmm. is a secular, secular religion. That religion is very Christian in a whole lot of ways. Very like serve the needy, um, you know, like this 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 ethos um, that you can see deriving from the Puritans or having a lot of hallmark similarities with the Puritans around how it regulates other people's behavior, the call out culture, the cancel culture, all of that stuff. The high amount of judgmentalism going on in that. And then the fracturing of society into identity, I don't know how that works into it, but that's just something that's being installed into the state and the and then, at the same time, the people who are doing that, the Joe Bidens of the world who are installing this religion or assuming this kind of religious aspect in the state, you know with Dei, with affirmative action, with equity, are at the same time vilifying Christian nationalism or saying that mm-hmm. these these other this other religion, this other religion wants to take over our government. This other religion wants to be the nation. And they're, you know, that's not, we are the true ones and they're the false ones or something like that. It's this interesting antibody of that religion being highly distrustful of the Christian nationalism, whatever that means, or the fascist Christians or whatever. Yeah. And I
1: think that's exactly right. I think it's politics is mimetic warfare and memes hmm. don't like memes that are Going to take their hosts from them, and so I think you have you have a idea that appeals very much to a certain ethics. If there's another ethics that appeals to something similar, but also maybe has certain advantages, um, so like I think Christian ethics have advantages over woke ethics, in part because I think woke ethics are like very. Um, very like bigoted in a in a deep way, right they're very discriminatory they tend to reward certain like classes of people in order to like keep them within the fold in ways that are probably not good for everyone in general or for you know the culture of the society but the Christian ethic I think has advantages over that because it doesn't necessarily do that there are that there's a tangent that we can go on. But um, <laughs> I think that like the impulse for a lot of progressives is to use like this position of power to just like kill the baby in its cradle um, and to stamp things out before they can get big. And I think that progressives, they enjoy conservatives who are like a little bit crazy and who are like easy to defeat in a way. In the same way that like Humans, we're going to cultivate crops that are easy to grow, that produce abundant food, that nourish us. The, these, you know, corn is like, it is a species that is very biomass successful, but actually has no power. And I think that, like, if you are someone who's very progressive and you want to have, like, a one party state, if you want to, like, control things truly, what you want is for your opponents to be corn. You want to be able to have them grow, but be very easy to like, just swipe down with your scythe. And so I think that like having an enemy that is systematically, intellectually inferior, weakened, um, like doesn't understand the levers of power, that is very advantageous.
0: Hmm. And in uh, now we're in war time. Then how would one mount a uh, adequate resistance to? Uh that power dynamic
1: i think stop being corn you have to you have to be your own predator and the way to do that what, is to apex not, corn yeah like high, like apex high fructose <laughs> exactly <laughs> genetically modified corn The humans can't stop it freaking and corn <laughs> i think the way you do that is by like defying the liberal paradigm and like refusing to fit into the boxes so like this is something that i'm sure tons of people have said before I don't remember exactly who said this, but like, it's the idea that if you if you have a fifteen year old and you show them like the woke progressive ideology and they hate it instinctively, they're like this sucks, and then you tell them, well, the opposite of that is Nazism. Well, then they go to Nazism and they start like believing in that. But the woke progressive ideology has like. A lot of antibodies for destroying nazism it That's knows how to do that Specifically. it's yeah. corn and so you can't be corn you have to not go to whatever is like sold to you as the opposite you mm. have to build your own or connect to your own intellectual framework that yeah. the liberal establishment does not have antibodies yeah. for.
0: was it orthogonal or perpendicular you can't you can't do the opposite thing you can't you can't be a reactionary, a one-to-one reactionary. You have to, you have to do it from the sides. You have to react mm-hmm. in an unexpected direction. Yeah,
1: just break out of, break out of. The matrix, but if, guys. but the, the,
0: but the, uh, the problem is, is that how does that scale? And that's the interesting thing mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this weird new right-ish pl- place that I'm exploring is that you have all these people branching out in other ways than fascist. But how do they mount a uni- How do they unify? How do you unify the rebels? I don't, I don't know if you can.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you can either. Cause sometimes their goals are just like so different. Um, I mean, I think one way is maybe to just like chip at specific issues. So like James Lindsay, I know that he has his own like pet projects and his own issues. It's all like the critical theories, but he also disagrees with like the dissident right in a lot of ways. And they Get into little spats about things, and I think that that is okay. Like it's okay to disagree about things if you can also focus your efforts on like Political destroying, yeah. yeah, one bad thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Friend enemy distinction. Mm-hmm. Being able to have a you know, change that at will. So where can people find you on the internet, and what what do you have on offer for them? Are you doing Are you doing writing? Or are you doing mostly video work at this point?
1: I am going to work more in writing. That's definitely a, a project for me. I've got like some stuff in the works and then I'm also going to try to do more interviews like this on the interviewer side, um, but also just like general, general talks. So yeah, I've got a, I've got a Twitter account called Tafferisms.
0: Oh, okay. Why fun... is taff? what does that mean?
1: I, <laughs> I always get this question. I just, Chose it very randomly. It used to be like an acronym for something, uh, yeah. but I've forgotten what that is. So
0: yeah, yeah. you and a common I, story. You, your, your generation, and this is, and we knew we saw it coming. <laughs> my generation saw this like, okay, we're my generation is going to take up all the regular names on the internet, and then you can have all these kids with these crazy names, and then they can't change them because like the, there's no way. So you're just like,
1: I was just watching your Charlemagne names. interview. And you're like, where do you get that meme? and He's like, I just thought it was cool.
0: I was a gamer.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was my game attack. It's like, yeah, that's relatable. So yeah, um, I go by taft hedge and then some people shorten that to Taft. And aphorisms are like short little uh, quippy statements. So yeah. it, it's a pun. So and cool. so,
0: and so, what is your content about? I think we, I think we've kind of mapped it out, but like, how would you summarize? Like, what do you what do you what are you doing like what do you want to be presenting what what are you working on like what is your domain generally speaking
1: i talk a lot about trans stuff so maybe like half my tweets are me being like saying something borderline transphobic and getting into trouble with trans people um and then another half of my tweets maybe like a quarter are me being like I fucking hate communists like why are these people idiots <laughs> and then there's like 25 which is like me being like this is some intellectual you know right-wing piece that i read or some science and those get like 25 likes but that's what i'm really interested in so that's what i'm gonna try to work on
0: boy hooters gun based <laughs> i don't know i'm sorry i don't mean to be disrespectful it's just, there's something very memeable about your position or your super position in the meme war, war. Do you do you inhabit yeah. that with uh, grace? Do you, do you do you like being? I guess you said that you kind of like being contrarian or just out of the.
1: I think so.
0: Expectation.
1: I like, I like disagreeing with people.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I uh, like being unusual. Unusual. I
1: like, I like merging some of like very feminine aesthetics sometimes, like the way that I decorate my room and stuff, and the way that I present myself with sometimes just like very. Out there, schizophrenic, male-brained, political possessions. Schizo
0: posting. Okay, yeah. yeah, awesome. So, um, and uh, on the video front, so you talk about your Twitter. You have a YouTube, and video. what are your plans for that for this year? Uh, you said interviews and stuff, or yeah, do you Twitch stream. I
1: do. do. Okay. Mm-hmm. I do stream.
0: Okay, and that's fun. Yeah. Is Twitch good?
1: It's fun. Um, I've
0: never done
1: Twitch. It's little blood sports. It's full of very left wing people, so, and it's also the moderation is very left wing, so no. you have to very, you have to be very careful. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, I can look it looks like if either.
1: you just Google Taftage, um, okay. the second link is my politics Twitter. Yeah, it'll it'll get you everything if you just
0: Google. Uh, it's going to be linked down in the description, regardless. So, last question, if you want to answer this one, something like totally goofy that you do, uh, your hobby, your weird kind of thing that you like to do in the world, like walking, uh, moonwalking, everything. And juggling. Everything about me
1: is goofy. Okay, <laughs> I like I like playing Dungeons and Dragons. That's okay, one of my
0: hobbies, like um, like on the tabletop or online, but like with the storytelling and stuff, not like a video game, but like a
1: I do it uh, in person, yeah.
0: Okay. Are you the dungeon master or the dungeon Sometimes.
1: Okay. I've done both. I enjoy both. I ran like a, a Cold War game set in the 1960s where players were spies and there was like magic that was discovered in Siberia. The world governments were conspiring to hide it, but the players had like magic abilities and they had to fight monsters. Basically, they were like a special task force to like hide magic from the world. And that was How long did that fight.
0: game run? How uh,
1: about a year oh yeah. wow so okay pretty decent mm-hmm. oh fun
0: that's fun yeah. well um so you want me to call you taff to wrap up
1: or april or april words. april uh, yeah.
0: thank you for uh coming on my show it was really fun talking to you hopefully we get to do this again sometime
1: it was uh for thanks for thanks, thanks for letting me ramble uh maybe we'll do it next time with another person yeah and i'm always up to that. each other
0: yeah I have fun doing that let me end